This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Joshua Taylor. Hello. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Russia is losing its war in Ukraine right now in more ways than one. Not only are Ukrainian forces making tremendous gains against Russian forces, but Russia's reputation is taking a beating. Many are saying we're about to see the fall of Vladimir Putin, if not Russia itself. One friend proving remarkably loyal to Russia is its neighbor, China. This week, the Chinese leader made a very strong show of support for his Russian counterpart, and both powers reaffirmed their goal of jointly reshaping the world order. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was just yesterday that Chinese leader Xi Jinping met face-to-face with Vladimir Putin. It was uh, in Uzbekistan on the sidelines of a big summit for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And this meeting marked the first time that these two authoritarians have met in person since late February when uh, Russia dramatically escalated its war on Ukraine. So Xi Jinping has sort of played a little bit coy since then. He's tried to avoid flagrant violations of America's sanctions by refraining from any really like direct assistance to Russia's war. But at the same time, he has boosted trade with Russia considerably during this year. And he has voted along with Russia in the UN Security Council. He's even joined in a set of major war games that Russia hosted last month. So all of those were signs that Xi Jinping was still supporting Russia, despite this brutal war. And now here we have the first trip that Xi Jinping has made outside of China in almost 1000 days. And he's using it to meet with Vladimir Putin. So this is, I think, just a very clear signal. It broadcasts to the world that the Russia-China axis remains strong despite the war. Um, Putin made some comments at the start of this meeting. He did acknowledge that China has questions about the way the war is going. But Putin said that he was sure they would uh, be able to get everything answered to the satisfaction of both parties. And then she was apparently um, really more vocal about his support for Russia than he has been at any time since it started. He was quoted by Russian state media as saying, in the face of the colossal changes of our time on a global scale, unprecedented in recent history, we are ready to team up with our Russian colleagues to set an example of a responsible world power and to play a leading role in putting a rapidly changing world on the track of sustainable and positive development. End quote. So, you know, there's there's a bit to unpack there, but he's he's basically saying China is with Russia. We're ready to team up despite this war. He's also saying the two of them are dead set, utterly determined on ushering in a new world order, one that does not have America at the top. So this is a, it is a major meeting and it shows that despite the optimism that many had that China might be kind of rethinking its partnership with Russia, the two of them are going strong and they're more determined than ever to push against the global order. 
Putin also made some really strong statements along those lines of uh, displacing America and the American-led order. He did. He kind of uh, played his hits, so to speak. That's one of his go-to topics, is uh, railing against what he often calls the unipolar world order. One superpower, of course, that's America. Uh, I don't think either of them called the U.S. out by name, but when they talk about the desperate need to end this unipolar world order, that's saying we need for Russia and China to be the other poles, so to speak. We want a multipolar order. And and really, between the lines, they're saying we want America to be destroyed. So they met in Uzbekistan. This was actually the host country for the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Tell us about this organization, what its goals are, and the fact that these two leaders met within that context, what that says about it. Yes. Yeah, that's really another notable part of this story. Um, It was on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the SCO. And this organization, it's one that the Trumpet has been carefully watching almost ever since the group was founded back in the uh, the mid-90s. This group is made up of India and Pakistan, and then four Central Asian states, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, and then of course Russia and China are the lead nations in this bloc. So these are several of the world's most populous countries. The combined population of the member states comes to about 3.2 billion. So that's close to half of the total global population. And this uh, organization is designed to boost the cohesion of these countries, especially in the realm of security. You know, it also helps them establish common ground in terms of economics and politics, um, but security is really the main purpose of it. And the SCO has grown into just a deeply influential organization over the years. Since its founding, the members have signed well over 100 major cooperation agreements, and they've uh, expanded collaboration across just a whole range of fronts. So with this latest meeting this past week, which Xi Jinping and Putin both attended, I think we should expect for the SCO to be gaining even more momentum and for these countries to build even more of the uh, kind of the framework that's needed to integrate their countries. This uh, integration, uh, put this in context of Bible prophecy for us. Sure, yeah. These meetings, you know, especially between Putin and Xi, these are deeply significant. It's, it's very telling that even as Russia wages an illegal war of aggression on a peaceful nation, that China still has its back. And really, so do all these other nations that are part of the SCO, or else I think they wouldn't be attending these meetings and, you know, working out new ways to cooperate with Vladimir Putin's Russia. So it is significant geopolitically, but then it's also very significant in terms of Bible prophecy. Prophecy. The book of Revelation tells us that a, uh, a multinational Asian axis will emerge in the modern era, and it'll have 200 million men in its military forces. So just a, a stunning number, hard to comprehend. But if you're talking about a force of that size coming from something like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization's combined population, you know, 3.2 billion people, then it's not at all an unrealistic figure. 
And then there are also passages in the book of Ezekiel saying that Russia will be at the head of this multinational Asian power bloc with China as sort of its um, number two primary partner there. So you can really see these ancient prophecies just coming to life with the meetings this week. And with other current trends in Asia, um, you, you see Russia and China drawing close despite the war, and you see them increasingly leading several other Asian nations. So it's working toward a reality that is really just what these passages told us to expect. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Jeremiah has written an article that will appear on the website soon. If it's not up there already, Xi reemerges on world stage with Putin to confront U.S. dominance. Go check that out. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. Another development from the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting yesterday also demonstrated the group's intention to challenge America's leadership. This involving the terrorist-sponsoring nearly nuclear-armed state of Iran for this, we'll turn to Joshua Taylor. So on Thursday, September 14th, Iran signed what's called a Memorandum of Obligations to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So what this means is they're now on the track to full membership. Starting now that they're going to be able to attend and participate fully in the SEO meetings um, now that they're on this track and they're going to be part of this, this pretty sizable organization. Currently, the SCO is the world's largest regional organization. Its member states account for about 30% of the world's entire GDP and 40% of the world's population and include nations like China, Russia, India, and most of the stands. So it's, it's huge. It's basically the direct rival to uh, NATO. And it's at this point bigger than NATO in terms of the amount of people, uh, amount of nations in it. Now, it's not a direct security uh, organization like NATO, but in terms of the economic uh, benefits that it offers, it's pretty crazy. And Putin said this week that uh, we're going to do everything to make Iran a full member of the SEO. And that includes Russia and Iran also working towards a n another new major independent treaty between them that will strengthen their economic and strategic ties as well. So as you said, this is really a direct challenge to the United States and the United States' power. Ever since World War II, the United States has been the world's superpower, but the U.S.'s will to be that superpower, as many people would say, the world's policeman, so to speak, has really been disappearing. We're talking about a, uh, a, a nation that has defied the uh, international community in, in bringing its uh, nuclear program under control. Uh, it seems determined to uh, to to defy the United States in every way that it possibly can. The fact that you have Russia, that you have uh, China, these other countries that are saying this is the kind of nation that we want to work with, it really does send a strong message about the future world that they're trying to create. Yep. Up, up until, like I said, since World War II, the U.S. has been the world superpower. Pax uh, Americana, a piece of the world basically brought on by the United States, a world order of the United States. And Russia and China really are working to upend that. Uh, even the Jerusalem Post had a really good uh, quote regarding this uh, signing of this uh, memorandum. They said, this takes the form of challenging the U.S.-led world order, and both Russia and China are clear that they want to upend the U.S. role in the world. As such, Iran's joining of the SEO is an important milestone. It is symbolic, but it has real implications. And that's because 
going forward any you know russia is being sanctioned by the us and they're doing just fine economically they're even doing better and then iran it's they're they're you know they're suffering a little bit more because they're so oil dependent and they don't have a lot of help in that regards but you know with this with this uh becoming a full member of the seo that just opens up their markets now to more uh to china and russia which are both heavy energy uh producers and consumers and there are other signs that Iran is kind of being welcomed within to the uh, international community. Yeah, again, with same, these same nations. Uh, there's another organization that uh, Iran has applied to join called the BRICS. So that's going to be that's Brazil, that stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, uh, South Africa. Again, these are all the developing economies of the world that make up most of the population and the the GDP of the world. So you're bringing Iran into this big marketplace. It's just it's just spitting in the U.S.'s face, saying we don't need you. Hmm. So uh, help us to understand why this is significant prophetically. Prophetically, we look at a prophecy that Jesus Christ Himself spoke in Luke 21 verse 24, in which He talks about the times of the Gentiles. Now, in Bible prophecy, Israel, prophetically, is nations like Israel, uh, the little nation of Judah, Israel right now, uh, Britain, and America. Those are, that, those are the prophetically Israelite countries. So the rest of the countries like Russia, China, and Iran, these are the Gentile powers uh, that, that Jesus Christ is talking about. And you pair that with uh, Daniel 7, where you see these Gentile powers described as beasts, as ravaging, raging beasts. And you look at how, as America is leaving the scene, you know, on the world where they're abdicating their superpower role, basically, you just look at what happened with Af Afghanistan, as an example, and you see these, these wild nations, these beasts taking that power, seeing that power vacuum, smelling the blood in the water, and they're circling like sharks, getting ready to pounce and attack. So that's why we look at this, because Christ said that this time we're in right now, we would see the rise of these, these uh, ferocious uh, Gentile powers, which is exactly what we're seeing with Russia, China, and Iran in the mixture. Well, regarding that prophecy that Jesus Christ uttered, we'd like to point you to an article that our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, wrote in our February 2020 Trumpet edition, The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. Another story showing world leaders' intention to be ready for a post-American world order. The German defense minister said this week... His nation needs to take on a much more active leadership role militarily. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, we had another significant speech from Germany on its commitment to the military. Actually, a couple this week. The first came from the German defense minister, Christine Lambrecht. Uh, she said that Germany must take on a leading military role, uh, whether it wants to or not. Germany does not have to be afraid she said, or not, it shouldn't be afraid of stepping up militarily. Talking about this belief that Germany has been maybe a little reticent in some ways to step up militarily because of its past. She's saying Germany should not be afraid of its past. She said Germany's size, its geographical situation, its economic power, in short, its clout, make us a leading power, whether or not we want to be one militarily as well. She said, Germany is ready to take the burden off America in Europe and thus make a decisive contribution to sharing the load fairly. Uh, 
This is what Donald Trump spent four years demanding that Germany do spend sufficient on its military so Germany doesn't have to defend Europe. And she's up there saying, OK, you know, it's America that is holding the military shield over Europe right now. We're ready to take on that burden. And she talks specifically about amounts of money that Germany needs to spend. She talked about this 100 billion euro fund that they set up at the start of the year. That's almost exactly the same in dollars, 100 billion. Uh, and she talked about again, so we need to make sure it's not a one-off spend. We need to we need to make sure that this keeps going. And then this was followed up later in the week, yes, uh, yesterday or no, sorry, even today, with Germany's Chancellor Olaf Schulz talking about how the German armed forces must be the best equipped in Europe. So that's a that's a that's commenting for a pretty big. Well, that's calling for a pretty big change. You know, Germany's armed forces are famous for having to march with broomsticks in replacement for guns because they just haven't had the equipment available. So he's promising a pretty big turnaround for the German armed forces as well. So Olaf Scholz, uh, we haven't heard too much uh, from him on this subject for a while, have we? This this is uh, the same man who earlier this year uh, made these proclamations about this dramatic increase in German uh, defense spending. And this was the most popular thing that he's done since he's been in office. Uh, he's he's returning to that, that same theme here. Yes. It, he kind of, he made this big statement right at the start of the year. Everyone cheered, everyone clapped. And then he kind of disappeared on the issue and then even tried to weasel back out of some of his promises once he started to think about exactly how much all of this was going to cost. So yeah, this is, I think it is a remarkable week now to see them coming back and hitting this again. I think it's also a good time to remember that things have changed since this January speech. Uh, the LA Times had an excellent article just highlighting some of this where you know, it can be easy, I think, to look at some of these German leaders and, and, and even this week and say, OK, well, we've had another regressive speech from the German leadership. Well, we had that before. We had that in February. We, we, we had that in 2013, I think. You know, we've had these kind of big landmark speeches where German leaders have got up and said, we need to make some big changes. We need to be a big military power. Well, fine, we had more speeches this week. Has anything changed? And I think that's a fair question. And I thought the LA Times article was particularly illuminating with the answer. Uh, it was Russia's invasion of Ukraine is jolting Germany into rebuilding its military. And it focused on, it talked about some of the tangible changes. What I thought was most interesting was the change in the way, in the interaction between society and the German military, that we're looking at a very different relationship between the two, where it was very hard even for German soldiers to kind of show their faces in public, or they weren't treated the same way that an American soldier, say, would be there was there was a little bit of of suspicion within germany even of its own armed forces recruiting was was fairly difficult and now all this has changed it's so much easier for recruiters to get into school campuses young people growing up are so they're enthusiastic about joining the armed forces now which is something that has never really been the case uh they quoted a uh uh, one of the one student that was looking at joining the German army, he says the negative image isn't really there anymore. The German army has become attractive again. Uh, one a captain in the German military, a youth liaison officer, talked about how there'd been a big jump in requests for military personnel to come and visit 
schools and give public talks. Uh, he said the war in Ukraine makes people realize how important it is to have an army to protect them. So we're seeing tangible changes in the German army. We're also seeing a fundamental change in the relationship between Germany and its army. So, yes, things maybe sometimes move a little slower than than we expect, but there are real tangible changes that are taking place in Germany actually quite quickly because of this invasion of Ukraine that Russia launched earlier this year. It does seem like the the public's appetite for this kind of uh, escalation in military spending, military leadership, uh, Germany just taking a stronger, more robust and muscular role in the world uh, probably is is one of the most fundamental and dramatic changes that we're we're seeing here after um, having a certain amount of shame about their their history for a long time that that no longer is the case when we look at this from the standpoint of bible prophecy in a lot of ways the military aspect of german leadership within europe is uh is is a crucial component of what we would expect given the prophecies of the bible can you explain about that Yes, it is. And that's where we're seeing at the same time in these two trends of Germany kind of embracing its military and then Germany saying, well, we're going to lead all of Europe's military. We have a trends article, why the trumpet watches Europe's push towards a unified military. But that really focuses on this whole military dimension of both Europe and Germany. And it takes you through towards the end of the article, all of these very specific prophecies that talk about the power that is rising up in Europe. And just about every prophecy that talks about this power emphasizes its military potential. That this, the Bible talks about empires as beasts. It uses beasts to represent them in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. And whenever it, and this, this beast, this European beast, it talks about as being made up of a group of smaller kings, a group of smaller nations that give up their power uh, towards one overall nation in the same way, exactly the same way that we see European leaders coming together in a group of nations, giving up their power towards this overall kind of European beast power. And these same prophecies all emphasize its military potential, that it goes in and devours other countries, that the world looks on and says, well, who can even fight this beast, this empire? It's just so powerful. And so now what we see is Europe and taking some of or Germany taking some of those steps towards leading that kind of a power and it is a direct fulfillment of what we've seen in the bible it's uh and we're going to see them take on much more of this role even in the future so that article uh why the trumpet watches europe's push towards a unified military uh you know maybe we'll have to update some of that in terms of some of the latest news because there have been so many dramatic developments on that front just in the last few years but the prophecy that is included there equips you to watch this be fulfilled before your eyes. Well, we really do uh, encourage you to take a look at that article, Why the Trumpet Watches Europe's Push Toward a Unified Military, a trend article on thetrumpet.com. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. In the United States, the FBI's efforts to attack political opponents escalated still further this week. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, back on Labor Day, uh, Joe Biden gave his now infamous speech, basically declaring it was open season on MAGA Republicans. And the FBI has taken note. Uh, shortly after that, you had a, a high-profile arrest of uh, the former White House advisor, Steve Bannon. Uh, 
the same day uh, those charges were laid, there were FBI raids on 35 other homes of uh, key Republican officials. Uh, and now this week, you actually have the FBI's uh confiscated the phone they didn't arrest him but they confiscated the phone of uh my pillow ceo mike lindell uh so that's uh well over well over three dozen people who have been prosecuted since that speech uh and the the crimes they're being charged with uh vary from individual to individual uh but all these people are really uh involved in one of two projects that the FBI considers unforgivable, uh, and that's the attempt to build the border wall and the attempt to expose the stolen election. Like I said, this started off with um, uh, Steve Bannon's arrest, which is interesting because Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro were the two people who uh, mastermind what they called the Green Bay Sweep. That was the the strategy to get 100 uh, congressman on January 6, 2021, to contest the certification of the election. That never happened because of the January 6 protest. But it was Bannon and Navarro who, who kind of mastermind that strategy of getting these 100 people uh, to basically stonewall the certification until the states could retract their, could retract their uh, electoral votes. And so the, the FBI is definitely never forgiven Bannon for this. So they've they've now charged him on uh, uh, charges of money laundering uh, and uh, and fraud uh, because of when he was uh, before before he was involved in this Green Bay sweep thing, uh, he had established a fund where he was collecting money from private American citizens uh, to build the border wall. Congress says we don't have the money for a border wall. So he's like, all right, well, the American people want it. I'll just collect the money from them. Well, because Congress never let the border wall get built, he he technically still has uh, that money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're, they're basically charging him with defrauding these people of their money. Uh, he's claiming not guilty. And I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it uh, – to see how this plays out, we definitely don't have all the details here, whether he, uh, I kind of doubt he intends to just steal millions of dollars from the American people. Uh, it could end up being something like what happened with Dinesh D'Souza, where they put him in prison for two years after he made a documentary against Obama uh, because he actually did violate some minor campaign vi- finance law. Uh, so B- Bannon's definitely claiming that they're after him for what he did on January 6th uh, and for his attempts to make the border wall and that he, he, he isn't intending to steal this money. But uh, he, uh, they let him out on bail, and that's when he, he uh, mentioned on Tucker Carlson's show that there had been 35 other uh, Republicans raided that day. And so the, uh, the FBI, they're, they're definitely full out— um, Full out after Bannon and anyone associated with this project to build the to fund the border wall, uh, and this project to expose what happened on January sixth, uh, and then um, that Mike Lindell arrest ties in with this as well. He was not involved with that border wall project, uh, but he uh, there were suspicions, at least unconfirmed suspicions, that he'd been in contact with Tina Peters who uh, is a Mesa County clerk who stole a server uh, from 
like one of the Dominion voting machines to expose uh, how those machines were being used to steal the election. Now, in her case, that definitely is a crime. Yeah, it's like a Robin Hood style crime where <laughs> she's claiming that, like, well, I I, I committed a crime to expose an, an even, even bigger. bigger crime, yeah. uh, and so um, and so she's definitely being prosecuted for that. Uh, Mike Lindell, because with his cyber symposium, he'd been in contact with some people like trying to expose Dominion voting machines. They they were worried that he might have been talking back and forth with Tina Peters, so they they cornered him in some restaurant it wasn't an applebee's but it was like an applebee's uh mm. and then uh and then took his took his phone which he's saying is like he's like he's like i guess he doesn't own a computer and he like runs his my pillow business from his phone uh so he's a pretty big inconvenience for him yeah have, have you read uh, just about the uh the legality of of what the fbi did in this case i am looking into that uh i i think definitely uh because Trump, uh, President Trump, he hasn't commented on the <laughs> Bannon situation yet. Mm. I think he's going to wait for the dust to settle and find out if Bannon really is uh, guilty of a crime or not. Mm. But he definitely came out and said that what they did to Mitt Lindell is proof that America is now a weaponized police state. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> President Trump definitely don't think what they did to to Mike Lindell was was not legal and probably and probably right. I don't think they can just take a businessman's phone that he's using to run his business just because he might have texted somebody yeah. who's being prosecuted. I mean, you prosecute Tina Peters if you want, but it's uh, but yeah, like I said, there's there, there's really no proof that would. <laughs> would hold water in a warrant uh, that I know of to justify what they did there. So what we're seeing here is is just more proof or a more uh, evidence, very strong evidence that the the only thing that the Democrats are trying to do here is to cover their tracks to uh, to shut up anyone who would try to expose what happened. Uh, they keep talking about this like these people are threats to democracy. Um, and that this is this is something that is fundamentally un-American and th these people need to be silenced uh, because they're calling into question the integrity of our elections and so on. Um, but when you see the tactics that they're using and the, the number of people that they've gotten caught up in this dragnet, uh, they they're they're exposing just how desperate they are to keep this information under wraps right i'm looking for the list of the 35 other people uh, that they they raided because uh bannon said 35 i haven't been able to find it yet but that is a big that is a big dragnet and um i'm i'm not gonna go out on a limb and say that all the people they arrested haven't committed some uh so, some crime or some minor campaign uh uh violation but you can definitely see when you step back and look at the picture that this is coming on the heels of the Mar-a-Lago raid. This is coming on the heels of the January 6th commission. This is coming on the, the heels of uh, uh, Biden's speech uh, condemning the, the MAGA Republicans as extremists. That there, there definitely is. You'd have to be uh, blind as a bat in a London fog to uh, not see that there's there's definitely is a political motive here 
to uh, uh, intimidate and go after anyone uh, trying to secure America's borders uh, and anyone trying to ensure that there's free and fair elections, because that's that's really that's really the Democrats' strategy to turn America into a one-party state is to uh, open the borders um, one, so you can bring in a bunch of uh, uh, socialist-minded uh, potential Democratic borders, and then two is uh, make our elections so insecure that you can. Uh, stuff them with fraudulent ballots or let illegals vote and then um between those those one that one two punch i mean you could you could stay in in power forever and the the mega republicans as much as uh president biden's condemning that as an extremist threat know that basically the future of america remaining a constitutional republic rests on those two things you need secure borders and free elections and so if they can uh if they can uh take down anyone trying to uh even raise money for a border wall that congress won't pay for uh or uh expose what uh, uh the various ways whether through dominion voting machines or or fraudulent mail-in ballots that the democrats are stealing the election well uh they're, they're definitely going to go go whole hog at that well, we have an article up on the website by Stephen Fleury. Uh, Joe Obama declares war on MAGA Republicans that we'll link to if you want more information about that. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, as Ukraine forces beat back Russia, analysts say the chances of Russia escalating the war are increasing exponentially. A right-wing political victory in Sweden, Iran and Hezbollah pulling out of Syria, and a really bad day for America's stock market. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We spoke in the first half about the setbacks that Russia has suffered this past week in Ukraine. Some say this means the end of Russia. Others say there is zero chance Vladimir Putin will allow that to happen. He's certain to take a more dangerous and deadly course for this. We'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, it's been really a rough couple of weeks for Vladimir Putin. The uh, The Republic of Georgia announced that it'll be holding a referendum soon on whether or not to wage war on Russia. Many Georgians want to retake Georgia's lost land while Russia's kind of distracted in Ukraine. Then uh, Azerbaijan just started attacking Russian ally Armenia this week in what is really a more serious conflict even than what we saw there a couple of years ago. And then China is actually displacing Russia as the most powerful nation in parts of Central Asia, especially with Kazakhstan. China just signed a big deal with the Kazakhs saying that China supports Kazakhstan's uh, independence and their territorial integrity. So that's really aimed at Russia. And of course, the big one is that as you said in the in the introduction there, the Ukraine war itself has been just disastrous for Putin over the last couple of weeks. Ukraine has now retaken 2,300 square miles of land that the Russians previously occupied, and that includes some key cities. So just major gains by Ukraine's counteroffensive that have surpassed even the most wildly optimistic hopes. And uh, Russia's military positions in these areas 
entirely collapsed, which means just stunning amounts of Russian weaponry were abandoned and then transferred to Ukraine. Analysts say that in the city of Izium alone, it's enough tanks, artillery, and ammo for 10 to 20,000 troops. So that's a uh, that means this is actually the single largest transfer of arms that we've seen since World War II. So we've we've reached a point now where Russia has transferred more weapons to Ukrainian soldiers than everything that America and the rest of NATO has done to this point. So it does all add up to quite a lot of very bad news for Putin. And much of this news, especially about Russian losses in Ukraine, is making its way into Russia. And plenty of Russians are blaming Putin personally for it, and they want him out. In, uh, in recent days, there have been municipal lawmakers from 18 districts in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and a bunch of other big cities who are calling for him to resign. So just quite a lot of opposition and troubling news. And, and I think it's easy to get swept up in the uh, optimism about Ukraine's overall chances right now. But the truth is, despite all of this, the hard numbers show that Russia still has the upper hand in this war and that Putin can still win it. There was an insightful dispatch this week from geopolitical strategist Peter Zion, and he said, uh, quote, the Russians still have a military force that's over 10 times the size of Ukraine. They've got more tanks, they've got more artillery, they've got more aircraft. Everything on paper suggests that this is still the Russians' war to lose. So yes, They've had a really bad week, and a lot of us are cheering that this continues, but we should not bet on that, end quote. So, you know, it has been inspiring to see Ukraine push so hard against the Russians and, and even to see some prominent Russians start second-guessing Putin, but this man has survived for 22 years at Russia's helm, and the numbers are still firmly on the side of his forces, so it, it would be a mistake to write him off. It is really important that we understand just how, uh, what an existential threat this is for Russia and the the political calculations that uh, that Vladimir Putin has to be making under these circumstances. When you have these, uh, well, we have this article up on the website today by Richard Palmer. Is the war in Ukraine about to get much worse? And he's talking about. Uh, these these other nations that are making these moves against Russia because they simply don't fear it. If Ukrainian forces can drive Russian forces out, then, uh, hey, maybe they're not such a, a fearsome adversary after all. Uh, you were making a point, Mr. Palmer, about a uh, historical example of Russia uh, trying to invade Finland and that not going so well and the after effects of that. Can you can you uh, bring us in on that historical example? Yeah, I mean, people expected the Finnish invasion to be a walk in the park in much the same way that they expected the Ukrainian invasion to be a walk in the park. And it wasn't. I mean, in the end, Finland emerged from that war the victor. But in seeing that Finland, even just the fact they had to break into a sweat and a lot more than that to defeat little Finland, the world sat up and took note. Uh, you know, Hitler had long wanted to attack Russia, but in a large part, it was this that persuaded him that you know, now was the time and that, uh, that Russia, was, Russia was weak. He, he said, you only have to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. And the results of that, in, I mean, Russia won the war, but the results were disastrous. I mean, they very nearly didn't. And even when they did, they lost 27 million people, which is an almost incomprehensible number staggering battlefield loss uh, and and civilian loss which if they had not projected that kind of weakness 
may very well not have happened. And you know, you know, Putin is very familiar with that kind of history. He's looking around and seeing a lot of countries all around. You know, there's maybe not a Nazi Germany, obviously, on the scene right now, but there's a whole lot of countries all around Russia or even part of Russia that don't like Russia, that would love to be free of Russia. And if he shows that kind of weakness, uh, you know, it's not just the outcome of the Ukrainian war that is on the line here. It is the survival of Russia, period. This is how empires fall. They get beaten by an easily a foe that everyone believed they could win, and everyone can, and then all of their subject people kind of turn and wake up and think, "Oh, well, we could get our freedom now." Yeah, yeah. the the uh, The consequences of uh, showing that kind of weakness are very clear when you look at the losses that Russia suffered. I guess the other moral that you can draw from that is just Russia's determination to win at all costs. Yeah. That's that's true. Um, you know, Peter Zion talked a little bit about this in the in the piece that I mentioned a moment ago. He, he's talking a little bit about Finland and other chapters of history. But he said, in history, we've seen times when the Russians move in, they get sucker punched by superior forces in terms of either numbers or technology and logistics and morale and training, and it destroys them. The Russian position collapses, the Russians retreat or that military division is simply obliterated. And then back in Mother Russia, there's a bit of a regeneration. And a new force comes in with different tactics and different leadership and better equipment. And then the numbers turn. So, you know, we, we did see this in World War II. It's just a complete route for Russia on the Eastern Front early on. But then Stalin regrouped. He really rebranded the war and all of his rhetoric. He labeled it the Great Patriotic War. And he called on the Russians to start to emulate their heroic ancestors in the war against Napoleon. And, uh, and then he started throwing millions of men at Hitler's forces. And it was one of the big reasons why the Nazis were defeated. So I think we could very likely see kind of a redux of this in Russia today. We could see Putin declare war, whereas up until now, he's just called this a limited operation. And and that would allow a national draft and mass mobilizations. Also placing the nation on a wartime footing would let him better direct Russian industry toward the war as well. So that could really turn things around. And then there's also the chance that China could start directly supporting this war. Up until now, China has only provided indirect economic support and political. But uh, if Chairman Xi starts sending armaments and troops in, that could turn the tides very quickly. There's also the chance that Putin could start using WMDs, you know, chemical weapons or even tactical nuclear weapons. There's a lot of risk in that because other nuclear powers may feel compelled to respond. But in in you know, the kind of desperation that Putin's in right now, he may not care. But really, I think the question now is just how fast the Russian system can adjust. But in either case, the, the numbers and the power are still on Putin's side, so we should not write him off. Fascinating situation unfolding there uh, in Ukraine and with, with Russia. I really encourage you to uh, go and read Mr. Richard Palmer's article, Is the War in Ukraine About to Get Much Worse? We really need to keep our eyes on how this situation unfolds. Thank you for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. Another election victory for a right-wing party in Europe, this one in Sweden. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, all Europe has really been shocked by these election results where... You know, on paper, not a huge amount has changed. The country that came in first place before kind of also came in first place again and uh, all of this kind of thing. 
But you look at the at the details and the whole balance of power is really shifted over here. And the big takeaway and what's really shocked people is the rise of the Sweden Democrats. Because of the way that these different votes have shifted, the Sweden Democrats are uh, the second biggest party. They're also the biggest right wing party. And the shift in the votes also mean that it will probably be a right wing government. So they will be a very, very substantial part, it seems, of the next government of Sweden. Now, Sweden Democrats does not sound like it's a controversial party. That's a pretty um, that's a, that's a pretty innocuous sounding name. But the Sweden Democrats are a party with neo-Nazi roots. So this is a, a group that you, know, you go back a decade or two, they were pretty much out and out neo-Nazi. They're taking the same trajectory that we've seen again and again in Europe with the groups that we've been talking about in Italy, with Marine Le Pen's uh, National Front and whatever they've changed their name to now uh, in, in France, where they've kind of moved they've changed their rhetoric a bit. They're still parties with neo-Nazi roots. So they're now poised to be a, a very substantial part of the French government. I mean, the, the Swedish government. Now, they may, they may kind of uh, just support the coalition from parliament and maybe not take any seats in a coalition because they are still viewed as kind of extreme. Uh, we, that remains to be seen. But uh, it's a powerful example of the way that you've just had politics change dramatically all across Europe. This is a party that didn't enter politics until after the 2008 financial crisis. And then 2008 came, you had the 2010 elections. They got about 6% of the vote coming in sixth place. And that was big news back then, just for them to get 6%. Uh, 2018, it was big news because they got 17.5% and were in third place in the election. This time round, 20.5%, second place, the largest right-wing party. Why, uh, why is this group making such political gains in Sweden? Well, you've had some significant changes to Swedish society. So since the last elections in 2018, there have been about 500 bombings, including attacks with hand grenades. There have been lots of stories of gang killings, Children have been caught in the crossfire. Shootings have started to become a more regular part of Swedish life. There was a a 16-year-old Armenian killed a man in a gym just over the summer, and the killer then fled to Armenia and then was given Swedish citizenship. So you're you're having genuine, real problems caused by mass immigration and the left-wing parties in Sweden and and even the kind of center-right parties in Sweden have allowed mass immigration to come in. And this is the dynamic that you're having all all across Europe, where there are real, very real, very genuine concerns from people about mass immigration and the consequences of it. And because none of the mainstream parties have addressed this, they're turning to people like the Swedish Democrats, where you have even now some of their members saying the kind of Swedish equivalent of Sieg Kyle. And still, even though they've tried to distance themselves from some of their more Nazi past, signs that that past has not completely gone away. This is what you're seeing all across Europe. And it's a powerful trend. It's We've talked about 
a massive political change coming to Europe. These same political or these same Bible prophecies that talk about the rise of this 10 nation superpower, they talk about it being you know, authoritarian, not democratic. It's not led by a committee or a group of presidents. And this is what you're seeing line up in Europe now, where all of the mainstream parties have let in mass immigration. They've all left and right generally agreed to a whole set of disastrous policies. And if you want somebody that has opposed those countries that have caused disaster and ruin for your country, in so many cases, your only option is some of these extreme parties. And so that is really fueling a political transformation within Europe. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. We do have uh, an article that we'll link to in the show notes, Germany, Migrants, and the Big Lie. This is from a few years back that uh, had, uh, it talks about this same dynamic unfolding within Germany and puts it in its prophetic context. After a series of airstrikes by Israel in Syria, Iranian-backed militia groups there, including Hezbollah, have been pulling out. For this story, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, so these airstrikes have been occurring over the last several months. It's something that Israel does pretty regularly, though their uh, general uh, way of operation is to not admit to any of these airstrikes, but it's pretty obvious it's them. Uh, just for a couple examples, in June, uh, an Israeli airstrike on an airport in Damascus forced it to close for over two weeks. Um, at the end of August, Israel struck Iranian targets near a Russian naval base and also struck several targets in the Hama province. And then in September, Syria's Aleppo airport has been struck several times, and which has greatly angered the Syrian government. Now, what's interesting is that the media and the IDF are claiming that this really is a sole kind of function of the IDF's airstrikes, that, the, that these airstrikes are the reason why the Iranian militias and Hezbollah are pulling out of Syria. What I think is being really overlooked, though, is Russia's role in this withdrawal. At the end of August, Russia demanded that Iran withdraw those militias from large parts of the country following some of those more uh, high-profile airstrikes like the one near its naval base. And uh, this, this was reported in a London-based Arabic paper on August uh, 31st. And they say, quote, three Russian officers and their Iranian counterparts made the demands at the Hamam military airport in central Syria. So... Um, that's it's a pretty significant thing for uh, Russia to be making these kind of demands, especially as they're cozying up and getting closer together. For Iran to be uh, to to see this daylight between Iran and Syria is is quite extraordinary. We've been talking about this for a long time because of Bible prophecy. They've been so close for so long, and yet Bible prophecy indicates we are going to see a split here. Yeah, and that's something that the that all political news analysts would never see coming and don't and never predict. But we put base this analysis on uh, a prophecy in Psalm 83 that actually shows that uh, the Hagareans, which is the biblical name for Syria, will actually be allied with not Iran, which would be uh, the prophecy in Daniel 11:40, but with Germany, with Assyria. So that's why we've been predicting f for years uh, that Iran and Syria were going to drift apart and. We're seeing that now as Syria and both Syria and Russia are getting tired of Iran's uh, shenanigans, so to speak, in uh, Syria. We have an article by Brent Noctegal from a couple of years back called The Imminent Iran-Syria Divorce that explains this prophecy. You can uh, check that out if you look at the show notes for the program today. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. One final story. Bad economic news in America made for a rough week for investors 
to learn about this. We'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yes, $1.6 trillion went poof on Tuesday as the stock market dropped uh, its most dramatically since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I think just the Dow itself went down 3.9%, while the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ actually went down by more than that. So uh, I think it's rebounded a little since then, but a ton of a ton of money just lost as investors uh, woke up to the fact that inflation isn't going anywhere. Uh, for a long time, the, the Federal Reserve had been telling us that they were going to keep raising interest rates, raising auto loan rates, raising mortgage rates. It's going to get more expensive to borrow money, and that was going to bring the inflation down. And uh, the, the investors were optimistic that that was true and kept investing. And then finally on Tuesday, uh, the, the Labor Department released its new inflation report uh, and actually found that the inflation rate, uh, instead of going down, actually went up uh, if you don't count the cost of fuel, which has gone down a little bit. I think overall, the overall like inflation rate or the consumer price index went down from 8.5 to 8.3. Uh, but almost all of that drop was due to fuel prices, which are volatile enough that they don't really count as proper inflation. Uh, so when you, the food prices went up and the fuel prices went down and then the price of everything except for food and fuel, which is your best estimate of actual currency devaluation went up about 0.6%. And so the investors, they started selling off stuff as they realized that a lot of these, uh, well, they're basically anticipating, uh, uh, a prolonged recession, uh, because if the if the inflation's not going down, that means the Fed's going to have to raise rates more. Uh, it's going to get even more expensive to borrow money, which means that investors, businessmen, they're going to have to be uh, very cautious, <laughs> very cautious going forward. They can't they can't take a lot of big risk and a lot of big investments, and that's that's really the main cause for this just huge stock market drop. In a way, it's remarkable how resilient the American economy is. Uh, there's been a lot of bad news for a long time uh, for businessmen to be looking at this situation and saying, uh, we really are in dire trouble here. This is something to take note of. Yeah, definitely to take note of. The, the Federal Reserve is meeting again uh, either next week or maybe the week after. And uh, they're expecting, based on this new inflation data, that they're going to do another big rate rate hike. Um and then that rate hike, it said, hopefully, hopefully that will be the one uh, to tamp down the inflation a little bit. Uh, but it definitely is going to put a, a lot of cold water on America's uh, economic growth. And so these uh, these investors are are taking precautions. Uh, one man who probably knows what he's talking about, the, the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, is actually warning that he said the United States is heading towards something worse than a recession. Uh, a depression is what's worse than uh, a recession. Uh, and so he's uh, he's saying that not only is there going to be an official recession, we're probably really already in one, uh, but that's going to continue for more than four quarters uh, as the, the government tries to get this inflation to come back down. And so uh, it's definitely something that, um, oh, I wrote an article 
at the beginning part of this year, uh, quoting her W. Armstrong from the 19, uh, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, saying, uh, get prepared to reduce your standard of living uh, because you get this stagflation where the economy is stagnate, stagnating, uh, but the uh, inflation keeps going up means that you're you're not going to get many raises if the the economy is stagnant uh, and your money's not going to go as far if the inflation keeps going up and so if you if you can't increase your income uh, and your money buys less then the the only the only option is to just get ready to uh, like I said lower your standard of a uh, lower your standard of income. I looked at, they say already with this inflation, the personal savings rate in America is at 4.4%, uh, which is historically, it's been about 10, uh, if you 10%. If you read our, our How to Solve Your Money Troubles book, it recommends about 10%. And so you're saving less than half uh, of what they probably should be, uh, largely because of this inflation. Uh, and so, like I said, you do have to get ready that these pieces are like you're saving 4% of your money and you're going to lose 10% of your purchasing power over the next year. Uh, unless you're in a position where you're going to get a pay increase, you probably need to buy 15% less stuff, 10% to adjust for the inflation and 5% because you're saving too little uh, as it stands now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, whatever that means, whether that means a older car or a cheap smaller house or boycott restaurants that's that's up to that's up to you but over the the next year you're probably going to need to get ready to buy 15 percent less stuff prepare to reduce your standard of living that's the name of the article that uh, andrew miller wrote in our april 2022 trumpet magazine go check that out we also have our booklet how to solve your money troubles we'll link to both of those in the show notes thank you mr miller i'm joel hilliker and that's it for today's trumpet hour email us your thoughts on the program to letters at the trumpet.com thanks to our panel jeremiah Jacques, andrew miller richard palmer and joshua taylor thanks to parker campbell for engineering and production i'll leave you with the words of rupert hughes a determined soul will do more with a rusty monkey wrench than a loafer will accomplish with all the tools in a machine shop thanks for joining us on trumpet hour until next time keep watching your world Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.